Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Today we're going to be covering a topic that affects many startups that inevitably want to look into the U.S. for expansion. And we have one of the partners at uh, Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, Dan Glazer, who's in charge of U.S. expansion, uh, the practice there for that. And he has a, an amazing 10-step list that we're going to go through, uh, which can help you sort of think through the challenges of taking a company into the United States. But before we do that, firstly, thanks for joining us, Dan. Carlos, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. We'd like to start off with the man behind sort of the accomplished fact. So maybe start off with what you did after college. How was your first journey into what you do today? So after I, I graduated uni, um, I got a backpack, right? A couple of friends from, from the States and said, you know what? We're going to go out and see the world. We're going to go out and have, you know, an exciting adventure. So we, we, we got a Eurorail pass. We got a BritRail pass and did what apparently every other American, Canadian and Australian does and go to all the different youth hostels around uh, Cundle Europe, around the UK, Ireland, um, and uh, thinking that we were going to have a great adventure, ended up just meeting other Americans, Canadians, and Australians. But what it did do is it, it left with me, uh, you know, a real a real love uh, of the UK and Europe, and uh, and sort of a realization back then when I was uh, when I was younger and wiser that absolutely. I needed to find a way to create a career that would take me back to the UK and Europe as much as possible. So is that far in advance that you already knew that you wanted to have that kind of career? And and for those of us that aren't lawyers and don't understand the career path of a lawyer, like how, how long is that? Like how, I mean, presumably you've, you've been in law, you didn't take a, a shortcut into something else and back into law. Cause I think it's one of those careers. It's kind of hard to do that, but how, how long are we talking about? How long do partners generally take to, to get to being a partner? Yeah, I mean, in, in the States, the way it works, and, and just to be clear, it's a little bit different in, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, but here's the way it works in the States. So you, you go to uni for about four, four years, um, and then when you graduate, you have a choice, right? You can go directly into three years of law school, which is what I did. I, I took three, three months and traveled in Europe and then, then went to law school um, and spent three years in law school. Um, or you can do something else in between uni and law school. And there's plenty of people who take a year to three years, sort of like a gap year or gap multiple years and will work, um, you know, work at another job, um, maybe travel, all sorts of things. Right. Um, but eventually you end up going to three years of law school. Um, and then you go out, uh, and typically if you were going to end up making partner, you, you would go join a private practice law firm. Uh, and the, the partnership track typically at, at large law firms is anywhere from, let's say, eight to 10 years. Um, and you, you would be an associate for eight to 10 years. And then eventually, um, you know, you would, you would make partner. I mean, other, you know, other career paths might be that you, you go and work at a law firm for, you know, some number of years and then decide to go in, in house, right? And become an in house corporate counsel or in house counsel for, for, for a company. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to, the specific sort of partner path is about eight to 10 years as an associate. And then you hopefully you make partner and then you, you sort of continue on with your career from, from there. So there's eight, eight to 10 years of being something other than a partner. Uh, do you have any funny anecdotes of like uh, burning the midlight oil or, or like uh, having to photocopy like 
500 books, uh, you know, for something for the next day and then the book not even being needed. Any, any sort of war stories <laughs> that you can share for those that probably have a little less empathy towards lawyers? Yeah, I, I, I remember one where, um, you know, and it just goes, goes to show you that the, the, the deal itself may seem very exciting on, on the outside, but on the inside, it's ultimately, you know, deals are sort of similar. I was one of the lawyers who, who represented the, the acquirers of the, the U.S. baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. Right. And, and I, I remember when, when we did that, that deal, I must have been, God, 15, 17 years, years ago now. Um, I, I, w- I was working on it um, over the U.S. Thank- Thanksgiving holiday and, and, and came in over th- Thanksgiving and, and was, was working away and, and was told to sit at my desk and wait for, for a conference call. And I spent you know, about a day worth of time sitting at my desk waiting for the conference call as a very ju- junior associate until someone reached out to me and said, oh, by the way, it was canceled. <laughs> we just forgot to tell you. Um, so that, that was there. There were better ways to spend your U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. But, you know, wow. it, 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 it's the way it goes. Um, I guess I also have the war story of I missed my own engagement party. Uh, oh. as, as, as a junior associate on a, uh, on a transaction. Uh, and that one, uh, that one actually was, was at the end of the day, uh, it, it, it was not just make work. It was something that we actually had to stay late for. But, um, my wife has fortunately since forgiven me. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. I mean, it, it is a profession that is known for, and, and banking too, and, and medicine that, that are these classical sort of industries where there is quite a bit of, of, you're serving other people, right? And this is what allows you to have the track record you have and and your firm to have the track record it has with, with working with names like Apple, Google, Netflix, Netscape. You know, that comes from that, that level of, of of dedication. But maybe back to, to humanize the sort of the role of a lawyer, um, how is it that lawyers work on uh, figuring out who is the partner level type uh, associate? You know, is it... Is it on their understanding of the law or is it mostly about how good they're with relationships or how, what's the mix? How, how, how do lawyers get promoted? I mean, there's, and, and this, this is not meant to evade the question by any means, is it, it, it there's no kind of one answer, mm. right? Is that especially at large law firms, you know, they are, they're large businesses ultimately, right? And, and different people, you know, may, may fit into the firm in, in different ways, right? Um, that, you know, there are you know some in individuals who may be true you know world class experts in their field of the law, right? And that and that area of the law is really crucial to the firm's overall practice, right? And they might might make partner. Um, there are others, let's say, who are particularly good at working with with the firm's clients, right? Um, whether the firm's existing clients or or, or or potentially working with with new new clients, right? And those. You know that sort of um, ability to connect with with companies and individuals might be something that might lead them to to, to partnership. I would say increasingly, um, I think in 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 this day and age, it ends up being the whole package, right? Is that for the, for the most part, certainly at at the, the the top law firms in the U.S., I think that generally speaking, there's an expectation that you're both you know very very good at the well, outstanding, not very good, outstanding at, at the technical aspects of the law. Uh, as well as you know, show real sort of people pe- yeah. pe- people relationship skills as well. Which which kind of brings us to the topic that we're going to cover today, which is in expanding to the U.S. in ten steps. It would seem that with a subject that is constantly under flux, you know, with what's going on right now around the world and in different regimes, 
being excluded from immigration, other ones being included, you know, do not buy lists, ad lists, um, some countries being able to not even have access to certain visa types, other countries being preferred, you know, with all that influx, how can you actually be both a master in that and at the same time spend enough time with clients to build relationships? You know, I, I think part of it is, and, and this is a trend that we see in, in, in the law and I think in other, other professions as well, is, is, a, is a trend toward specialization, right? It, it, is that because the world is getting more complicated, the economy is getting more, more, more complicated, and the subject matter is getting more, more complicated. Um, like let, let, you know, you'll, you'll have people, you'll have individuals, not only at law firms, but at tax accounting firms, at, um, you know, banks, et, et cetera, who are, who are true experts in their area, but know that when it maybe goes outside their area, they may know enough about it to spot issues, but they're not necessarily gonna, gonna, gonna freelance too much out, outside of, of their area because knowing for, for, for example, that it's, um, you know, that it's an area in flux. Here's an example is U.S. Im Im immigration, right? Um, so we don't, we as a firm, and I personally you know, do not practice U.S. immigration law. And frankly, most U.S. business law firms don't do U.S. Im immigration work. You know, I and a number of my colleagues who work with, um, you know, non-U.S. companies entering the U.S. sort of know enough about it to advise at a very high level, right, to, uh, to sort of flag, flag issues. But ultimately, we're, we're always 10 times out of 10 going to strongly recommend to, let's say, European companies expanding to the States that, you know, they should speak to a, a trained, specific U.S. immigration lawyer sooner rather than later. And, you know, and, and we know several, right, who are, who are excellent. Um, right. And that's and, and I, I, I would say that about the whole sort of 10 steps checklist is that you know, certainly the, the approach that I take, I think that my team takes is that at a, at a high level, you know, we can issue spot and, and you know, in a way that we can be an effective first port of call mm. for companies as they're expanding to the States. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, in London and elsewhere in Europe sitting down with companies and, you know, taking some time to, to walk through the different aspects of U.S. expansion. But to ultimately execute on each specific piece is, is where we, we would want to bring in, you know, the, the true experts at tax accounting, right? The true experts at U.S. immigration, the true experts at, you know, setting up, you know, payroll and, and back office, you know, and we, and we do the U.S. legal. You actually bring up a very interesting question that I've, had, I've been asked by founders several times, which is how many law, lawyers do you need? And there are big firms like yours mm -hmm. that have multiple practices with one, underneath one umbrella, but how many lawyers do you need if you're yeah. a founder you know clearly you've just said that you recommend immigration mm -hmm. uh, to somebody else so uh, on average what are the functions that a founder needs to consider that perhaps a specialist or are required yeah immigration is one yeah no that's a great great question um, so here's what we usually see with let's say UK or your your European founders uh, is that they've got a relationship partner um, relationship contact, right, at a firm in the U at a law firm in the UK or in Europe, wherever their their home geography yeah. is, right, and then they'll have a relationship partner at their at their law firm in the US, like so that might be someone like me or one of one of my my my, my colleagues, mm -hmm. and as they have sort of different issues, whether it be employment or corporate or IP or you know maybe tax legal issues or data privacy, right, fintech regulatory if they're a fintech company. 
um, you know, what will typically happen is, is that, you know, they can always come you know, to me or their relationship partner in the first instance. And if it's not an area that is specifically ours, then we'll coordinate with one of our with one of our colleagues to bring them in. And then if it but then there's a couple of true specialist areas like immigration, right? That, that usually you might bring someone in. On, what are so, the true? I mean, if you have to name all of them, what are the true specialist areas? Immigration is actually the the big one. I mean, I'll tell you that that for us at Wilson Sonsini, I mean, our our approach, frankly, is is is, is to you know, work with technology enterprises, right? When we work with technology companies at all stages of development, and as a result, we've set up the firm in a way that, generally speaking, whatever practice areas tech companies, you know, need, that's what we do. Um, so, you know, I think in the past, there might have been some areas where you need to go out generally and get specialists, like, say, fintech regulatory would be one, or data privacy is another. I think for us and and probably some of our peer firms as well, there's been a real push toward bringing as much as possible for tech companies under one 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 roof. So actually, I do think when I, I mentioned immigration, I think immigration kind of is the that's the one that's that we long. typically say. Yeah, okay. I mean, usually when we when we work with with UK European companies coming yeah. into the states, that's usually the one area and usually the only area that that we need to okay. bring in somebody else. Well, that's that's good to know. That's good to know at least for for people to know that, that to keep a flag out for mm-hmm. that. All right, so let's jump into the ten steps of U.S. expansion. Um, I'm sure that uh, you you will go through each one of these in detail in a bit. So for for the purposes of of just listing them, I'm going to read them out. Legal, visas, taxes, insurance, banking, HR and admin, government support, property, personnel, and funding. So first of all, thanks for this really super easy way of of thinking about this. Uh, Walk us through the, the process. I mean, one thing is to have a list, but another one is to walk somebody through that list. Mm-hmm. So what's that What's that process for you and, and what are the sticky points in, the, in this list? Yeah, so so let's sort of set the stage a bit. So typically speaking, you know, what we would see is, you know, let, let, let's say I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in shortage, right? And uh, a co- company calls up and says, hey, we're thinking about going to the States, you know, what, what, what do I do? And uh, we'll say, great, let, let's, uh, let, let's go meet at Ozone. A little bit of a shout out for Ozone right, right, right there. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll sit down, take about 45 minutes, an hour or so, and we'll sort of walk through the steps of, right, you know, you're thinking about going to the States. What do you, what do you do? And there's sort of the first three areas, legal, immigration, and tax is usually the three that you tackle right off the bat, right? Um, and, and they, they all sort of link to, link together a bit. Um, and sort of to, to, to dive into it a bit, you know, on the, on the legal side, you know, there's basically four main areas to, to, to think about, which is, you know, forming a U.S. entity, um, Americanizing your U.K. or European contract terms. In other words, making them appropriate for, for the U.S. market under, under U.S. law. Um, addressing employment arrangements, just because, you know, U, U.K. Uh, or European employment law is totally different than, 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 than the States. And then addressing uh, U.S. Uh, trademark and, and patent filings, if if if, if appropriate, um, you know, just 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 keep going down the list a bit on Im- immigration. Um, that we always say that that's the long lead time item. I think everything Carlos that you mentioned on the list, we usually tell companies you can get it done 
six to eight weeks, maybe four to six if you're really pushing it. The legal can all be done. A U.S. company, we could set up in a day, right? Um, and the, the entirety of the U.S. legal, we could get done in a matter of a handful of days. But the long lead time item on this list is immigration. And we usually say that if you're planning to send people over to the States to work, or if you yourself, let's say as a founder, are planning to go to the States to work, um, leave yourself three to six months in, in advance, especially sort of in, in the current environment um, where you know, Im, Im, immigration is a little bit, little bit of flux right, right, right now with the States. Um, you know, give it, give it three, three to six months because you don't want to find that you've pushed the button go on your entire U.S. business, but you can't staff it appropriately. Um, you know, and then, and then, and then tax, right? Is that especially once you create the U.S. entity, you're, and especially, let's say once you start bringing in any sort of U.S. revenue, you're going to want to understand what the, the, the U.K. and U.S. tax implications are of, of, of that. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll want to take not only UK tax advice, but especially you want to take US tax advice and get a sense of, well, what is the, the, the best way to, to, to structure our US business? Should we be, you know, selling out of the US subsidiary? Should we be, um, you know, should we be selling out of the, the, let's say a UK parent company? What should the relationship be structurally? between the UK and, and, and US company, that all gets figured out together, right? And so immigration is, is sort of linked to legal because, you know, for certain types of visas, you, you often need a US company. The US company is tied to tax because at the end of the day, as I sometimes joke, the, 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 the lawyers take our guidance always from, from, you know, from, from the tax people. So you, know, you want to understand what, what your structure is going to look like. And that's usually more, more tax driven. But ultimately those three items, legal, immigration, tax, all get sorted out as an initial matter. And then, and then you sort of move on to the, to the next step sort of it, quickly it, thereafter. It sounds to me like those three are also the, the point where it's a go or no go. I think that's right. Right. Is, uh, you know, in a lot of times, you know, we'll sit down and, and talk to companies and, you know, and, and they, they sort of come away from the discussion and say, you know what, actually, we're probably more like, let's say, three months away or six months away, which is fine, right? And because until you sort of sit down and start thinking through, well, what does this look like practically, then, you know, the U.S. can look like, seem like a little bit of a black box. Right? And and what we try to tell companies in, is that, look, going at this fresh without any sort of guidelines, the U.S. can get complicated, it can get expensive, no question. But at this point in the development of, I think, the U.K. and the broader European you know, tech ecosystems, this is a fairly well-traveled path, right? And, and there are a lot of companies that have done this very successfully, and there are clear best practices on how to do this correctly and maybe, you know, equally importantly, how to do it cost-effectively. Right. And, and I think what, what we are, what we certainly try to do with companies that we work with is to put them in the best place possible to, to succeed in the States so they can sort of move on from the logistics as quickly as possible and focus, frankly, on core business. Mm-hmm. All right. Talking about core business, next on the list is people, HR and admin, banking, where your money comes in and goes, and insurance, which is in case of shit. So walk us through those three. Okay. So, so in, in insurance, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you, if you take a look at your, your UK or your, your, your European uh, business insurance policy, it'll have an exclusion for the United States or for North America. Um, and, and uh, it's a great question. So weird. Um, so 
the U.S. is just a different risk in, in, in environment. Um, and, you know, and it's funny because I always think to myself that on the other, for the, for the, for the, let's say the UK or European founder listening to that, probably thinking, well, of course the U.S. lawyer says it's going to be a different risk environment. But there actually is a, is a very tangible reason why, uh, why, why the U.S. is different. And, and that's because the U.S. for the most part is, is, is not loser pays in litigation. Right. And in the UK, for the most part, is right. And, and what that creates is that in the UK, there's a lot there are a lot fewer lawsuits mm. because unless you're really, really certain that you're going to win. Right. It's not even credible to threaten a lawsuit against someone, because if you go to court and lose, you're going to pay either you know, a good portion or even all of their legal fees. Right. That's a massive disincentive. Right to, to to threaten claims to bring claims against someone, and and it, and it creates frankly a fairly business friendly light touch environment, and even even I you know I think I, I the way I would describe it is a little bit of a DIY in, environment, right? In, in certainly in, I think in, in the UK, and I think that that's that that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean it, it makes it a little bit a little bit easier, let's say early on to to to, to grow a business, in the states where where it. It, it is not loser pays. Um, you know, litigation can be used there frequently as a strategic negotiation tool, or even the threat of litigation there can, can be a strategic negotiation tool. Or even, you know, let, let's say, for example, you have, you know, disgruntled employees in the, in the U.S. Well, the U.S. has at will employment, right? So technically, right, technically, as an employer, you, you could walk in on any given day and say to an employee, you know, um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to let you go. Um, and that's it. Um, the reality of it is, though, is that, you know, responsible employers generally don't work like that. There are a lot of, you know, very good, very strong anti-discrimination -dis -dis rules and uh, in, in laws in, in, in the states. And, you know, one of the most common areas of dispute in the states is, let's say, an, an employee say, um, saying to an employer post-termination, you know what, I feel like I've been discriminated against. Right. And, and in a in an environment that is that is not loser pays in lit litigation and in an environment where, let's say, employees can get plaintiff side employment lawyers to represent them um, on a contingency basis where the lawyer doesn't get paid unless, you know, the employee get, gets paid. You know, at that point, there becomes you can start to see why there's a real um, premium placed on avoiding disputes in the, in the first place. And the way that you protect yourself as a company in, in that environment is there's a couple of ways. I mean, number one is, you know, having sort of robust compliance procedures, um, making sure that, that you enter into, or that, you know, that you, you, to the extent possible that you enter into sort of clear, unambiguous contracts. But maybe the biggest one is insurance, right? It, is that you really do need to make sure that you have appropriate business insurance in the U S and it's, and it's usually at a different premium than in the UK because that that risk environment there yeah, is, no, makes sense. is different. Basically, be afraid, be very afraid. Well, th this this is where I, I like to always make the public service announcement um, about about the United States, right? Is that there's there's no way to explain the litigation landscape there without making it sound a bit scary, but the reality of it is is that it's the biggest economy in the world, and millions of businesses do business there very comfortably every year. I think. I think sometimes that companies outside the States fall into a bit of a trap because they see the U.S. on television and the movies 
and and you know and it seems familiar right and and you know they speak they speak english we in the uk speak english and you know a lot of europe speaks speak speak english and it, it seems it seems comfortable right and it's not that it's uncomfortable but it's easy to get lulled into thinking it's exactly the same mm. and it, it's just it's just not right it, it it's not that it's difficult to do business in the us it's just a different way of do of doing business mm. um so so i would not be afraid i'll just make the public service announcement for the united states here i would not be afraid of doing business in the states it's just understanding that there's a different way to do business in the us and well and, and with that comes some ways that the government supports startups so maybe walk us through the government support section sure um so you know as a let, let's let's say for example as a as a U, uk company and maybe in particular let's even be more specific as a london company um london based company expanding to, to the us you actually have a lot of different resources that that, that you can utilize so so let, let let's start at at the city level um you know london and partners has developed a program the mayor's international business program um as well as a few other initiatives to help london based tech companies go global with a particular focus um of uh, of helping them you know access the, the the us and and those are resources that are available you know on the ground in 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 london plus london and partners has uh offices in uh in in new york in san francisco i believe in la as as, as well um you know going going up to the, to the to the national level um there there's the department of international trade uk department of international trade um formerly known as uk trade and investment um and and i i like to refer to them as a bit of a swiss army knife um that they that they the way that they help companies especially on the ground in the united states is kind of whatever you need they're a great first port of call and so so dit has offices i believe in 11 different cities around around the us kind of all the major cities that you'd expect new york and boston washington um san francisco la chicago etc um and especially in the big tech hubs you know they're very very good about um helping uk tech companies you know win for lack of a better word you know win in the united states you know that they they are there waiting to help when the company launches in, in the states and you know they'll they'll help make introductions you know we we've seen them help um you know even host launch events at, at consulates it it's it's a really you know it's a really great service you just have to tap into it and a great way to tap into it at first is to is to get in touch um you know in in, in here in, in in the london market or or elsewhere in, in the uk um and then there's the the us government um you know the just to sort of keep it you know close to close to home in london um you know the us embassy london and specifically the us commercial service a few years ago um you know helped create the the select usa tech program and what that is is it takes the the us government's select usa initiative which is um the us commercial services um efforts to help non us businesses launch scale in the united states and select usa tech uh you know positions that specifically for high growth technology companies and uh you know the the embassy london in particular i think has been very um very proactive the the past few years in in becoming an an active member of the tech community helping to make connections for uk companies sc- launching scaling in in the us um you know running events at the embassy i mean really really sort of being being out there they're, they're very definitely opening very the door yeah yeah i mean it it's i've been very impressed with the amount of especially lately there's been a lot of new initiatives so definitely it sounds like startups need to go through that and it sounds like 
you have quite a, a good visibility on all the right things. Now on the list, you kind of touch upon, I mean, I'm going to skip property, not because it's not important, but because it's something that I think people just are cognizant of. Um, but I, I want to touch on both personnel and HR and admin again. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, people is such an important thing. And if we decouple the visas from it for a second, we're talking about everything from payroll benefits and um, and hiring contractors versus hiring employees locally. And what are the typical pitfalls? What are the like, top three pitfalls that you see that startups get wrong when it comes to dealing with people, other than immigration, dealing with people that their European assumptions do not map into U.S. So uh, there, there, there is sort of one above all that 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 I think uh, that we often see is a lot of U.K. and European companies who launch in the United States initially launch with a sales and marketing office. In, in the states, right? Like they'll start off a lot of times with, let's say, sake of argument, you know, HQ in London, and let's say a and start with a small sales office in New York, and and they'll look to hire their first New York sales sales lead, and let's just say that on average, American sales sales leads culturally are very good at self promotion, in a way that that seems a little literally foreign. You know, to to companies coming in from from outside, I think the the best anecdote or my favorite anecdote about this is I was talking to a, a UK founder who went over to New York, who had interviewed seven New York sales leads, potential New York sales leads, and he came back and and he, and he said to me, he said, I could not believe my my luck. I ended up interviewing the seven people that collectively were responsible for twenty five percent of US GDP. They just happened to walk in my, through my front door and they were right there. I mean, these are the most amazing. And he said these, of course, this was totally sar- sarcastic, right? It's just that if you took everything that, you know, was heard at face value, you know, there, everybody is, is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, you know, this is just culturally a difference between the U.S. and let's say other, you know, other, other geographies is that, you know, the, the way I, I like to, I like to put it is that, you have to remember that, that in nursery school in the States, from the age of five, we start with, with, with show and tell, which is basically pitching to the classroom of why your stuff is better than the next kid's stuff, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're the, the skeptical audience. They're, they're your skeptical potential investors. And you as a five-year-old are getting up there and, and, and pitching, right? And it just goes from, from, from there. Remember right? show and tell. Right. Never looked at it that way. <laughs> I'm going to reconsider my entire education. Wow. Okay. So that is the foundation of the U.S. educational system: is is, is to so learn. My stuff's better than your stuff. My stuff is better than your stuff. I think that right. says a whole bunch about the economy. <laughs> wow. Okay. I just a uh, great moment there. Um. So, right, so that's the first one. Yeah. So no, no. so the the bottom line is that there is a gap sometimes between talking the the talk and walking the walk. Yeah. And as a piece of advice, try to leverage your network as much as possible and do as much diligence as possible to, to be really thoughtful about that first or second U.S. sales hire. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. And that's, what's the next sort of most personnel slash HR admin mistake that startups make? Anything having to do with the structure, benefits, payroll, anything like that? Yeah. I, I think another... Easy thing to miss, let's say, is and, and this goes back a bit to, to what we were talking before about the U.S. is an at-will employment 
geography, right, and relative to other, which is not necessarily the, the case in other countries. And what what typically is market standard in the U.S. in terms of an employment arrangement is that you would have, let's say, an, an offer letter um, that has the financial terms, and then let's say an IP assignment and confidentiality agreement, which does exactly what it says on, on, on the tin, right, assigns the IP to the company, obligates the employee to maintain confidentiality. Um, but that's it. Right. There's no sort of 20 page employment ag- agreement. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, UK or European companies initially want to put together the full blown employment contract that, that also has like all the bells and whistles in, let's say the UK, like let's say five weeks holiday. And, uh, and if you, if you offered that to a US employee, you know, typically they'd ask for all, all the stuff that they get in the U.S., which is, you know, um, healthcare, retirement benefits. And then they'll say, yes, please, on the five weeks holiday, because that is that's not market in the yeah. U.S. is to get five five weeks holiday. So it's it, it, it's sort of understanding that the the comp packages look a little bit comp and benefits packages look a little bit different. And the documentation looks a lot different. Um, and, you know, there's there's generally no notice period, um, you know, non non compete. Arrangements are a little bit different in the U.S. I think the 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 the, the, the biggest um, difference, let's say, is in California, where non-compete arrangements with employees are unenforceable in California, hmm. and and you literally, as an employee, could wake up in the morning at uh, pick 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 a tech company, Apple, right, um, and you know, and then decide, you know what, um, in the afternoon, I I, I want to go work for. Um, you know, Facebook. Well, ultimately, there, there's nothing that can stop you other than making sure that you, um, you know, relational. Well, yeah, but 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 also that, that you're still bound by your IP assignment confidentiality yeah. agreement. But from a pure employment standpoint, you can do that, right? And that that's literally foreign to you know to employers coming in from 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 overseas. And and you know that's state by state though. Right, like in New York, for 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 example, when when you employ people, the employment laws are different, right? Because you know, quick civics lesson, of course, we've got fifty states in the U.S. and you know, employment law for the most part is governed you know by state law in each state, and each state is slightly different. Um, of course, on the non-compete issues, that's a big difference. You know, in New York, you generally can enforce reasonable non-competes, you know, for um, you know reasonable scope, reasonable time. Um, and it's important to understand the, the, the state that you're going into and what the employment laws are. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point, which is that the U.S. is a collection of states with different rules and, and different laws for each state. And then there is the, the larger federal government and, and its laws. And uh, maybe you can make a couple of comments regarding what things people need to consider at the local level versus at the larger level. Yeah, I mean... I think a couple things that we usually see companies um, engage with pretty early on on the state level. Let's see a few things: um, local sales tax, right? Um, is uh, you know each each state is is going to have you know it, it, it its own you know its own tax rates, its own sales tax rates that you'll have to work with your U.S. tax tax accountants on. Um, the local level, you know, the, the the distinctions between incorporation and registration to do business. Um, maybe, maybe this is the point where I should talk about Delaware uh, for, for, for a minute, if, if, if that's okay. I mean, the, uh, you know, we, I would say nine times out of ten, maybe more than that, 
the the uh, companies that we see um, launching in the U.S. you know launch as as Delaware corporations. Um, and the question we always get is sort of why why Delaware and and what does that mean? I have to put my office in in, in Delaware. And the answer to, to to that second point is no. It doesn't mean that you have to put your office in, in Delaware. But o- over time, what has developed in in the U.S. is is essentially Delaware has become sort of our our, our de facto national corporation, sort of like a limited company in uh, in 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 the, in the U.K. Um, that Delaware has has made itself a very sort of friendly state, you know, cost-effective, efficient state to, to, to incorporate in. You can incorporate in any of the 50 states, right? You, you could choose to incorporate in New York. You could choose to incorporate in California, wherever. Delaware has just over time become the, the, uh, the location of choice for incorporation for var- various reasons. And what, 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 it, what it, it gives you in particular is, is um, it sort of reduces friction if you want to, and, and increases flexibility if, if you want to sort of move around the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like for, um, and what I mean by that is wherever you have, let's say, employees or offices, you then have to register to do business. So let's say, for, for, for example, that you've got um, Delaware Corporation, but you want to set up your HQ in New York. Great. Um, so you would then incorporate in Delaware, register to do business in the state of New York, which is just a simple filing, you know, with, 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 with New York State. Let's say then after two years, you decided to move the U.S. HQ to San Francisco, right? Well, if you were incorporated in as a New York corporation um, and then you moved to San Francisco, to California, you know, it, when, when you wanted to get, let's say, corporate advice, you'd have to get New York corporate advice and you'd have to go back to New York and get New York corporate advice. As a Delaware corporation, pretty much advisors pretty much all around the U.S. will advise on their home state plus Delaware. Right. And, and so Delaware gives you the flexibility to sort of move around wherever you want. It's the Esperanto. That, that's an excellent analogy, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then if, if you're going to be a parent company in the U.S., and I'm talking in terms of, I've been talking until now in terms of creating a U.S. subsidiary, but if for various reasons you end up creating a U.S. parent company over your U.K. or your, 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 your European company, um, U.S. VC investors almost universally will expect to see a Delaware corporation as, as the parent. That's just the way that the, the, um, the market has developed over time, that best practices around venture investing have all coalesced around investing into, in, into Delaware cor- corporations. Um, so back to sort of the original question, that, that is a state overlay or a state sensitivity that the companies um, sort of learn pretty early on is, you know, where do I incorporate? And then as I go from state to state, um, in terms of selling or in terms of employees or operations, what do I need to think about in terms of local taxes? What do I need to think about in terms of local sort of formal registration? Mm. No, it makes sense. Makes sense and sounds like a lot of work. So as we wrap up the 10 steps, um, I'm going to skip funding only because I think that that's one that a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. But is there any last thoughts that you want to add to the the 10 steps that um, people might want to consider before approaching you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think one way to, to think about, about, about the, the states, and I think that this goes back a little bit to, to the sort of differences in litigation that we talked about earlier, is that for, for, for that and for other reasons, you know, the business environment in, in the states is just a little bit, you know, a little bit different than, let's say, the, the, the UK. And one way that I would describe it, and I think that gets reflected in sort of the, the expansion checklist, is that I think on average in, in the, the UK, you generally work with outside advisors sort of on a problem solving basis, 
right? You have a problem, you can't fix it, you work with, 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 with your advisors. And I think that that works really, really well. Because of the sort of differences in, in the US environment, Generally speaking, companies, certainly domestic companies, learn this early on in the States. You generally work with your advisors on a problem avoidance basis, right? In other words, that avoiding the exposure in the first place is at a premium in the States because while it's not always necessarily expensive to get things right the first time, mm -hmm. to a greater extent that let's say in the UK or elsewhere, it can get more expensive to fix it in, in the state. And that's, and that's a distinction that I think, you know, certainly second, third time founders know who have built businesses in the States, maybe exited and come back and are doing it again. Like that's, they'll have learned that the first they time. get it right the first time. Right. But, but I think pay, that. Pay the lawyer to do it right the first time. Well, you know, but, but it, but it, but it's, it's sort of a bargain, right? I mean, that your, your, your advisors, you maybe need your advisors more in the U.S., but, but there's also more of a strategic partnership relationship. Um, with advisors and companies in the right, U.S., you look you look good, and they look good, right? I mean, your 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 interests are, are are aligned, and certainly certainly the way that 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 the firms you know the firms who work in tech, let, let's say the the traditional Silicon Valley based firms that have now expanded nationally, you know, the whole whether it's in law, whether it's in tax accounting, or the other advisory areas, you know, they've developed a way of working with high growth tech companies over time. That is very much a we're in it together approach. You know, yes, you're you're going to need your advisors more, but we're going to be more value add. We're going to look to add value. We're going to try to make introductions for you wherever possible. We're going to try to make connections with our other clients, right? We're we're going to try to help you win, right? And try to make it as easy for you to work with us as possible and be a long term strategic partner, mm -hmm. right? And I think and that that's the hallmark, frankly, of how of how advisors in the tech space work in the states and and. We see that developing in the UK and it's encouraging. Yeah, that's great. Well, we always like to wrap things up with some fun questions and we started off talking about your backpacking. What's left on your bucket list? Um, what's left on, on my, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of living my, my, my bucket list every, every, every day it, it feels. Um, you know, I, I think um, one, one bit on the bucket list is that we, I'd love to see um, some of the companies, uh, I'd love to see some of the companies that we've been working with over the years, um, coming out of the UK, Europe have, have, you know, the real sort of Google or Facebook IPO coming out of Europe. That would be exciting. And to, to, to be a part of that would be really exciting. Okay. So, so you don't get to squeeze out of that question. So let's say you did see them, they're successful and they've asked you, Hey dad, what do you want to do with the, all this money? What is it that you would do with these guys? <laughs> it's like, Getting you back on the bucket list theme here. What would you do with the successful IPO founder who comes to you and says, thanks for this, mate. Let's, I got 10 million. Let's go do something. What would you do? Well, let, let's see. I, I, would, uh, I, I, I would go on this sort of two-week uh, whiskey tour around Scotland that I've been meaning to take for, uh, for, for a number of, of years now. There, 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 there's no doubt about that. Um, let's see. Um, you know, I think uh, the whiskey tour is good. I yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I, I think, I think the, the whiskey tour is there. Actually, I, I think what so now all the clients of yours that that are familiar with you and all the work that that you've done for them, guys, now you know what it is that you need to do for Dan. You <laughs> enable this whiskey tour. Um, okay, so how about this one? What superpower would you like to have, and why? 
Time travel. Time travel. Yeah. I could see where that would be useful for you. Absolutely. Knowing your travel schedule? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, by the way, oh, to go back on, on the bucket list, yeah, I, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like the Concord to come back, please. Oh yeah, the yeah. Concord. I'm sure, I'm sure we might have a variant of it from Elon Musk. Yeah. Soon enough. Um, so, some, something like that would be uh, very helpful in my, in my, my line of work. Yeah. Um, superpower would, would, would be uh, definitely would, would, would be time time travel. There's a lot of things I'd like to take back. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. Maybe bring some back some memories about show and tell. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, And until next time, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.